Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Lori Kautmans. She works as the curator of contemporary art at the Central Museum in Utrecht and as an independent art critic and curator. At the Central Museum, she's curated exhibitions with Basso Abbas and Ruan Abouram, Philip Goffler, and others. In 2016, she was awarded the prize for young art critics for her essay, The Possibility of a Garden, on the gardens of Derek Jarman and Ian Hamilton Finlay. This essay led to a larger curatorial research into the garden as a metaphor in times of climate change, culminating into the exhibition, The Botanical Revolution at the Central Museum. Is it possible to be a revolutionary and like flowers? At Net Art Space in The Hague and the publication on the necessity of gardening in ABC on art, botany, and cultivation, where we'll be spending most of our time. Welcome to the deep dive. How are you? Thank you. Thank you for this invitation. I'm good here. I'm really excited to have this conversation. You and I have had an opportunity to chat a little bit before I hit record. So we had like a little mini show just between ourselves before starting this conversation. But one of the things I I really wanted to highlight about this book, and again, the, the title on the necessity of gardening and ABC of art, botany and cultivation, what I was saying is that it's so densely beautiful. You've, you've really put together, I think, a collection of, of prompts and ideas that are not only interesting and thought-provoking to sort of read through, but just visually, the book is, is, is striking. So wh- what I really want to start with, just to kind of get us rolling, is, you know, what was the inspiration um, we mentioned the essay, but sort of what prompted your your thought process and ideas around gardening that has now led to the book, the exhibitions, and and everything that has come from that. Well, actually, it was like simultaneous developments in a way that that led to uh, the bigger research and also led to the form of this this publication. So on the one hand, I was in sort of a turning moment of my my life, figuring out like, okay, I'm working as a curator, but maybe want to do some more research. How can I make this happen? And I came across, uh, together with some befriended artists, uh, I came across the garden of, of Derek Jarman. So we made this road trip and this road trip was really this, yeah, sort of spark into developing new thoughts. Uh, and maybe I can say a little bit more about uh, Derek Jarman's uh, Prospect Cottage in a little bit. Parallel, I realized that there were a lot of artists actually working with uh, gardens in their practice, either like f- physically working in a garden, uh, creating their own gardens, but also really working with the garden as a metaphor. And at the same time, well, researching the garden and understanding how nature um, and, and thoughts on the Anthropocene are really shaping the arts uh, at this moment, uh, the, the practice of exhibition making. So all these these uh, elements together got me thinking into how can I make an exhibition about this? How can I bring these artists together? But also in this enormous um, span of information, I was also yeah figuring out 
ways to disseminate this disinformation, both bringing it together and disseminating it to a wider audience. So that's how this this ABC came into um, into being as a form. Um, and, and give me uh, a little bit more on that road trip. You know, this idea of movement as as something that can unlock ideas, unlock possibilities. It seems like it's it's very much connected as a as a genesis moment to this idea. So you know, I'm not familiar with his yeah. his, his gardens, so I'm going to assume. My my listeners aren't as well, so like kind of drop us into into that road trip and those particular gardens, and and kind of give us a little bit more of a of a of a roadmap into how that really was the spark. Yeah, so maybe um, let me tell you about um, Derek Jarman. He was a cinematographer, uh, an artist, a painter, uh, a writer as well, and. Um, Towards the 80s, he uh, discovered this, this small fisherman's cottage in uh, Dungeness, in the, the south of England, close to the, the, the coast. So it's um, maybe this is also part of the, the road trip and the experience again. But So to understand the, the place of this garden, I think it's important to understand the, the landscape where this garden came to fruition. So it's a place close to the coast. Uh, it's basically a beach of shingle, small stones. Uh, there's this very harsh... Uh, prevalent sea winds constantly. Also, the salt in the air makes it very difficult for for uh, most plants to grow. The shingle makes it very difficult for for plants to uh, grow roots. And in this almost impossible environment, uh, Derek Jarman managed to create this small open garden. And as he moved there in the late 80s, he was also diagnosed with HIV. And he writes about um, both processes of creating this garden and experiencing uh, living with AIDS in his book, Modern Nature. And in this book, he's really juxtaposing these two of garden flowering and creating this beautiful place in an un impossible environment or hostile environment. Uh, and at the same time, battling AIDS and also becoming yeah, really an advocate in the AIDS awareness movement in the, in the 80s. So modern nature was really an important trigger in thinking about what a garden means, what a garden can, can be. And in modern nature, uh, Derek Jarman writes, for example, that um, on one end, his garden has no borders. There's no fences. The horizon is its border. And I think this is a very important aspect in understanding uh, the metaphorical potential of Derek Jarman's garden, because it's really in general, when you think about what a garden is, it is about an enclosed space. It's about the fences around this garden that separate the garden space from the world around it. Uh, and German space is open. And I think this is very typical for it being an open-minded space as well. And another description that is quite important, I think, in his writing is that he says that his garden is a place of, it's, it's a, a paradise, um, but paradise is also uh, a haunted place. And um, he describes in a sort of sub-sentence that he considers this place a paradise, but that part of the garden the Lord forgot to mention. And I think this is also key in how the book developed and how the exhibition at the Central Museum came into being. You know, as I was going through the book and, and kind of thinking about, you know, there's, there's obviously many contributors, um, artists and essayists that give their perspectives, their ideas on these notions of, of gardens. And I think historically all of us have notions of, of gardens, you know, gardens have some meaning to us. 
on a lot of different levels. And it's interesting. I, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about the various metaphors and ideas that we place into gardens. Because I, I think there's so many different things we can project onto it. And yeah, totally, one yeah. can make the argument that they all work, right? Like, you know, they, they, this, it's one of those few things that you can say captures so many ideas, often when those ideas are in conflict with one another, right? So I want to talk more about those conflicts. But right now, I just want to talk about broadly that sense of the garden as this metaphor, and, and why you think it, it captures so much of that. Yeah, I think this is really from a long philosophical tradition as well, where how we as, as mankind relate to nature uh, is expressed in the garden. And this relationship with nature, the way we, we control it maybe, or the way we want to structure it, and the way we want to surround us with nature in this garden, in this controlled environment, is something that throughout history has been yeah, something thinkers, um, philosophers, artists as well, have returned to. And I think, of course, now we are at a very key point in life or in, in the development of, of the world uh, in thinking about the Anthropocene, where this garden takes on a whole new meaning again, I think. This is also one of the key elements that returns in the book, the way we think about the Anthropocene and how this is so much a very specific uh, way of relating to nature and also how this construct allows us to see this uh, this 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 relationship. Um, the book is titled "On the Necessity of Gardening," and I think this is also refers to this long tradition in in, in thinking. So there's this Dutch poet who uh, wrote a short lecture on this necessity of art and gardening, and um, for him it's really a, a plea to reconnect our thinking to gardening again. Um, and what I found fascinating is when I was reading his his lecture, it was written in, in 1990, it resonated so much also with this time of, of COVID. And um, I don't know how it was uh, in your uh, surroundings, but um, here in the Netherlands, people were really returning to turning to every kind of like green patch of land they could find, even if it was maybe a small balcony that people would have that would become like really a safe space, like a like a, a refuge. So this is, I think, one of the main metaphors that this garden has taken on in, in, in more philosophical traditions, that the garden is a place where you can retreat, withdraw from society, withdraw to create another experience of time as well. But this potential, this possibility to withdraw is also, of course, uh, yeah, it's also a, a sign of privilege. And I think this sort of duality, this desire to withdraw or to escape or to have a moment for, for yourself in this green space, uh, this maybe healing space as well, is also not something that is allowed for everyone. Or these walls that surround the garden also keep people out. So to put it very bluntly, and I think this juxtaposition between who's allowed in, who's allowed out, uh, how we deal with nature within uh, the confines of the garden, these are really things that I wanted to unravel in the in the publication. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to actually get to some of those ideas. But before we do that, one of the things, as you were kind of describing the environment of, of this garden, it, it, it made me think of this very popular adage. I don't, I don't think it was created by famous and now long deceased rapper Tupac Shakur, but he does have like a collection of, of um, poems because he was a poet where he talks about this, like his experiences growing up and kind of living in ghettos and stuff as this 
rose that grew from the concrete. Oh, beautiful. And so when you were talking about German's garden, it made me think about this harsh environment one would think wouldn't be particularly garden friendly, but through his own, as I'm learning this now for the first time, his his kind of health issues dealing with with HIV, growing this garden in this rough environment. So the experience, what I'm imagining is that the experience of dealing with HIV, particularly at the time in which it sounded like he was dealing with it, parallels very much to this this environment of being in a hostile environment, as you said, but yet still manage to create something beautiful, which makes me made me think about the Tupac thing, right? This this rose yeah, that's from the concrete, being able to create art, create something of yourself, even when you're in an environment that is hostile, right? As as many urban environments happen to be all around the world, but particularly here in the United States. So Having said all that, it it made me think about the garden as a place of the future, you know, where we're creating something and building something new, or in the yeah. spirit of dealing with the Anthropocene as that's come up, are our gardens a place of preservation, right? Or is it some combination of the two in, in your mind? But it's, yeah, it's a very nice question. I think it's really um, a place where we can learn so much, actually, in the garden. So I think if we want to um, yeah, find new ways of moving forward, then the garden, on the one hand, can really teach us another uh, experience of time. There's one work by um, Sarah Sien Chang, which, uh, a work called The Garden. It's a film that she made over the time span of a year, and she very yeah, meticulously, very straightforwardly, in a way, films her garden. And you can very slowly see the seasons change, um, life um, flowers coming into blossom, but also uh, the fall setting in and uh, the end of this cycle uh, coming in as well. And I think this is such an important work and understanding that we are living according to a nine to five rhythm, or well, most people work much more than nine to five. That there's another way of, of relating to time, of experiencing time, which we can learn in the garden. And I think this this sort of slowing down that happens in the garden is also a way of seeing life differently and seeing much more that this is a, a living with the non-humans. And if we we understand this, this living together, the human and the non-human, yeah, in this more slowed down version, I think we, we can see so much more potential. I think also this film is a great way of showing that growth is, is not something that is endless. Growth is something that happens within a cycle and we... Yeah, we need to take care of each other, each other's human and non-human in this garden to be able to to make this world together. And I, I love when like guests jump into things because I, you know, I talked about how I scribble notes, right? Um, and I, I had scribbled growth and maintenance as 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 two oh, yeah. ideas that are separable from one another, but also somewhat linked. And the way I was thinking ab- about them is obviously gardens grow, right? Like, you know, I think it's safe to say that someone plants something, they expect it to grow and blossom and become something else, right? That growth requires attention, right? It requires maintenance. And I I think about a little bit about the social aspecting of gardens, right? Where... I, you know, I, people are going to get tired of, of me saying this, but 
regular listeners will know I, I grew up here in New York. I grew up in Brooklyn. No gardens, right? Like very, very, very rural, um, very, very urban, very glass, very steel, all of those things. As a result, I did not spend a lot of time in, in natural space. So in this moment, you know, I'm finding gardening was something that like other people did, right? Like when I was growing up, gardening was something that wealthy people did or like this happened in like the suburbs, this happened in, in other places. And I'm curious how the the maintenance of a garden plays into this because I feel like when I was growing up, it was all about having the prettiest thing, right? Like that was my notion, right? Like gardens were these showcases for like wealthy people. Now, as I've gotten older and, and learned more about it, I feel like people are going back to more slow gardening, right? Like they're using natural stuff. They're not using like pesticides. They're not so interesting. They're not fighting like things like weeds, you know, like like all these different yeah. ideas have, have changed. And so I'm curious your idea around the desire for growth, but yet us going maybe into something else that's like slower and more that maintenance rather than just hacking and spraying and, and all the rest of it. <laughs> yeah, funny. No, exactly. This this intense control of the garden, eh? wanting it to be like blonde, being manicured and being completely green, only only grass, not any not 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 one single other plant is allowed in. And I think indeed there's a kind of like revolution happening in in what a garden is and what a garden is allowed to be. I think rewilding is a very uh, popular term in, in in terms of garden design at this uh, at this moment, and it, I think it's really quite telling for for this this change in in perception of how we are maybe not working uh, with nature in the garden, but how we are also part of this. I think this is really a, a key change uh, in um, in gardening at this at this moment. Though there's always this this other side to it, I must say. Like for example, thinking about growing only indigenous plants in one's garden. I think this is such a fascinating development. On the one hand, indigenous plants are often um, uh, important in biodiversity, uh, important also in, in relationship to what kind of bees it attracts, for example, and very delicate in within an ecosystem. And at the same time, the way uh, one speaks about the in indigenous plants uh, in relationship to invasive plants, for example, I think this is such a... Um, yeah, violent way again of thinking about what we allow into the garden and what we try to keep out. Also thinking about it in terms of yeah, these things being developments and uh, developing over centuries, not just uh, over over decades. Um, I think there's maybe also referring to um, an artwork that is in the exhibition and in the in the in the book as well is uh, a ballast garden. It's by Maria Teresa Alves. And ballast used to be the, the soil that was uh, used in, in ships to keep the ship deep enough into the water so that it could uh, cross the oceans. And Alves did research into several port harbors, into the ballast sites where this ballast was dumped again. And she um, found seeds that had been, been lying dormant for sometimes like centuries. And she grew these plants again. And from it, she kind of traced where the ships had come from and what kind of important trade or like was the main trade of certain harbors. And this ballast garden is really almost like a monument also to 
the uprooted lives, I think. And this is a really important aspect that returns throughout the whole um, throughout the whole book in different ways. Um, but she did research, for example, in the harbor of, of Liverpool. And she understood Liverpool in the 18th century was a harbor where a lot of uh, ships sailed to West Africa, kidnapped people. And she, yeah, by, by showing where the plants came from that she found in Liverpool, she traces this transatlantic slave trade. And I think uh, the garden that she grows then from the seeds that she found becomes this monument to, um, to lives and a lot of the plants actually that we see in these ballast gardens are plants we consider indigenous plants, but well, have come to us via very um, yeah, violent roots, in fact. So there's so much more than meets the eye in thinking about what we see in the garden and also maintenance, what it actually uh, entails. I think this is where uh, artists also really can open up our yeah, ways of thinking about the garden, huh? like how this metaphor plays out on, on, on yeah, a geopolitical historical uh, framework you know again you're you're jumping right into what i what i things that i, I want to touch on because I, I i interviewed a woman a few months ago jessica hernandez and she wrote a book called fresh banana leaves and she's an indigenous scholar and thinker and when i asked her about well she says it in a book but i also answered about her on the show and she, and she talked about how bananas which are now considered as a staple here, meaning throughout um, Central America and Latin America, South America, and the United States, but they were an invasive species to to the Americas. So they kind of came with um, those who were in, enslaved and and also from the South Pacific. So as people moved from places where bananas originally were, that's how they got here, and they become obviously a, a staple of many cultures, indigenous Latin American cultures, what have you. I hope that that story always anchored me for some reason, right? Not not just because it was a leading story of her book, but just the way in which I didn't know that, right? Like, um, you know, with with a family with West Indian roots, bananas are everywhere. I had no idea bananas were not indigenous to Barbados, right? Like, I just kind of thought they were. And so I, I mentioned that because it kind of goes back a little bit to, like, what we label invasive versus other things, right? Like weeds, like I mentioned earlier, weeds are considered bad, right? They're considered invasive to the sanctity of a beautiful, quote unquote, beautiful garden, right? But, you know, what we call weeds actually are flowers, right? And they have their own purpose within biodiversity and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, what I kind of jotted down was this idea of how we use this language and how it impacts things like colonialism, how it impacts the extractive way in which we think about our environments, right? And and how migratory all these ideas really are. So I've, I've said a lot, but uh, some of those ideas I feel are captured in the garden, right? Um, there's this notion of um, shifting and moving. And I wanted to get your your thoughts on on that metaphor and how it plays out in our lives, right? This invasive versus not. And particularly as we see people moving more and more because of things like the Anthropocene, right? Like people are moving due to climate crisis more than we've ever seen. No, it is actually, um, uh, this is a little sidetrack, but Kenneth Helpland wrote a lot about defiant gardens. So gardens in, in the most desolate places and how they can really offer this um, 
this sense of hope in the most desolate um, uh, context. Uh, there's a series of photographs from a Dutch photographer, Henk Wilschut, in the book, which uh, depicts the gardens that uh, people who were uprooted and were staying in, in what they call the jungle of Calais, which is uh, close to the sea and in the in the dunes. So in, even in these, these possible locations, once again, very much like, like German, in terms of environment, not in terms of, of living conditions, people still try to create their own space filled with flowers and gardens. I thought that was, yeah, that's such a heartbreaking work, but also really tapping into what you're saying right now, that this, these migrations, uh, migratory movements completely are, yeah, the way we, we, we perceive them is so much paralleled in the, to the way we, we talk about invasive species. I guess that also brings, yeah, brings out again this, this darker side of the, of the garden as a metaphor. Also, yeah, how, how wheat has been described indeed. Yeah. And, and, and we see this language politically, Right. Like, I think there was there was some official I don't know his name. So I'm, I'm like just reflecting on on this clip, one of these clips that, you know, go viral every once in a while. So I'm not going to say he was like a minister of something, but it was someone like I believe in the EU. And he, he actually used a lot of this language talking about like immigration and migration, where it was like. I'm paraphrasing, but I pretty much kind of do remember where it was like, you know, Europe is this garden, you know, we have to protect it and everything else going on outside is like a jungle, right? And, you know, that language is is clearly racial in its connotation, right? Like, you know, you're kind of saying the, you know, you're saying the quiet stuff out loud, right? The minute people hear jungle, that has a certain connotation. They You hear garden, it has a different connotation automatically, right? Like you hear the word garden, I picture the two things that come to my mind if someone just said word association is going to be Garden of Eden, right? And I'm an atheist, right? So I don't give a shit about any of that stuff. But, you know, it's like just socially, Garden of Eden. So you get this idea of paradise. And then because I've watched and read way too many like British, Victorian type books and movies and stuff like that. I just picture some country manor with like a garden, right? That just goes on endlessly and what have you. And I think both of those ideas are rooted from a Western perspective in whiteness, right? And then a jungle, even though Africa does not really have jungles for those out there, right? It's savannas and plains. But historically, people, jungle, they think Africa, dark, wild, untamed, all these things, right? So again, I'm, I'm curious about how it can hold these two ideas because the minute someone like that says garden and protecting it, you know what that means, right? Is protecting whiteness, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So how do, how do we wrestle with that? Yeah, no, it, it really refers completely back to this idea of the, the Hortus Conclusus, the closed, the enclosed garden that you yeah place a wall around the garden and keep out the wilderness outside and everything inside is tamed and, and controlled and manipulated. It immediately brings to mind this, this, this image, which is often from the Western European point of view seen as an ideal image still. But the moment you transfer it to the context that you were just talking about, it becomes a very violent, a violent metaphor. And it, of course, completely ignores this whole history of, well, the imperialist um, history of, of, of Europe. What I try to do in the book is talk about it through the, 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 the idea of uh, classifications. 
So in terms of, of Linnaeus, for example, trying to order the world in, in all these different categories. Uh, but these categories were very hierarchical, top down. Uh, there was no movement from the bottom to the top. And these hierarchies and these classifications are ways of studying nature, but are also ways of steering our gaze and determining what is allowed inside of the category and what falls outside of the category. I guess this is where yeah, this, this, this racism also starts in these kind of classifications and in this kind of lineage and in this base of, of science in, in, in thinking about what is allowed inside the garden and what is allowed outside of the garden or allowed what is, what is taking place outside of the garden. And of course, this, this pyramid structure that, that within Linnaeus speaks of, of these classifications, it's the white man on top. That system on its own is so much related to also going outside of Europe and claiming even if the, the yeah the, I guess the Garden of Eden is also often seen in the colon, colonized uh, areas. Going to the Garden of Eden in these colonized areas, uh, like the banana tree was seen as the tree of, of life, I think, in some, uh, some interpretations in the 17th century. But completely claiming it as one's own and, yeah. Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the oasis, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's another um, funny news um, uh, thing that just sprung to mind. But I think like when, when Trump set office in the, in the White House, his lovely wife uh, had the garden redone. And I think removed the historical garden and planted only white yeah. roses. I think these are such yeah, telling images. Yeah, absolutely. The, this, the destruction of things, right? Which... Um, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a quick aside, but I want to get to control. So I because I want to talk about control here, but it's it's funny. There was this this Twitter thread that I remember this from years ago, and I won't remember anything about I don't know how it originated, but it was like a gardening thread. And it it started off with this story with this woman told about how she was growing like something, some sort of flowers. And it was something that she put like a lot of care into it. And then she got into like some situation with her husband and he just fucking went out there and just tore up this garden, right? And so this post led to just this deluge of, of primarily women sharing their stories about gardens and things that they had done and created and built and nurtured and cared for that men came along in their lives and ruined, right? And some of it was malicious, like the first story. And some of it was just this notion of like cutting things, right? Like like men, and I'm stereotyping, but you know, I shit on men all the time. So I feel comfortable in doing that. And I'm not saying that men can't be good gardeners, a lot of men, and I would say American men, that have like lawn care is about chopping things and drilling and cutting. And it's not about just letting things be. And that, I, that thread always sticks in my brain because it was horrifying to hear these stories. But also it made me think about like, yeah, that's how dudes are, right? Like their idea of do of do of solving a problem is like, oh, let me just get the weed whacker out and just start hacking away at stuff. So I wonder how much of that is this this desire to control things, 
right? Whether it's controlling the women in your life through cutting apart their gardens or feeling like you can like control something in your life, like this garden. If you can't control anything else, you can at least go out on the weekend and chop shit up, right? <laughs> like, how does that factor into that Linnaeus idea of like trying to order the world, right? Order what can't be ordered. Yeah, and completely dominates. Yeah, fascinating. Very nice uh, uh, example of, of sort of connecting um, everyday gardening examples and, and struggles of, of these women to complete desire to control nature in the garden. It also brings to mind for me like uh, um, gardens like uh, Versailles, which are also these really, um, the garden is not only symmetrically and geometrically controlled uh, and everything that's outside of it is immediately eliminated, but it's also really designed in such a way to only highlight sort of the, the, the almighty power of uh, the castle itself. So to really make this castle seem even more grand uh, than it already is. So that's what, what it brings to mind uh, for me. But it also brings to mind the way of how naming is a way of, of controlling. And um, for example, if we talk about the Anthropocene, we talk about mankind's controlling nature in this moment in time. But of course, we can really criticize this, this idea as well, because it's not everyone who is messing up. And it's not everyone who is exploiting nature in the same um, same way. So why should... Should the, the Anthropocene be the, the main term to, to be used at this, this moment in time? We could also call it the capitalist scene and maybe point more towards, um, well, capitalist situation where um, uh, extractivism and uh, complete destruction over nature only for, for gain and profit takes over. Or we could call it, uh, as, as Donna Haraway does in a more sci-fi sci way, we can call it the, the Cthulhu scene and think of new ways of, of, um, of narrating yeah, how we deal with nature, how we are with nature. Um, but I think this, this, yeah, naming is control. This is really how that ties back to, to Linnaeus, I would say. Yeah. It, does gardening give us an opportunity to be more humble in the sense that yet there's always going to be those who want to control? Like you said, capitalism is a system of control. And, it, you know, I, it's funny. I just, when I think about the book and all these ideas I think about how like capitalism lives in so many of these spaces, right? Like homes here in the United States are primarily the number one source of wealth for most families. It's like their home for better or for worse, boom or bust. If you're a homeowner, that's your thing. So lawns, which is again, a very American concept of this like flat green thing. Everything looks like a golf course, right? Like if you look at the American model of suburbia. It was designed to have conformity. Everybody's lawn is the same. And, you know, I, I referenced like Mad Men very earlier, just all, when we were offline. And, you know, that was the thing, right? These men would go out in their khakis and their white t-shirts on the weekend and push the lawnmower across the, the yard. And having the perfect lawn was a function of showing your perfect house, which meant you were doing well and you were wealthy and you're doing, you know, all these things very laddered up. But I think I would attest to this, even though I'm not a super gardener, but as someone interested in this thing, like true gardening isn't about any of those things, right? It's, it's, it can be humbling, right? You plant something and then that motherfucker is just like, nah, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. 
I think um, uh, in the in the book, Toriona Sandiland speaks about this really beautifully. That it's um, you can't impose your will on what does and does not grow in the garden. It's really um, if you want to make this world in the garden, you have to do it together with the non-humans. Um, and indeed, I guess the lawn is really this typical example of 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 control in the garden now using so many pesticides to keep it as green as it is using so much water which is so unecologically uh, apt at this moment but it, there's one um, reference in the book uh, on moss and i think this is really for me key in understanding how we can sort of slow down and it's it's through the eyes of, of robin wall kimmerer who, who's written a, a book on, on gathering moss and, and what that actually means to see moss in a in a, in a forest for example Maybe at first you enter the, the forest and you just see green, and then slowly you start understanding, okay, trees, shrubs, uh, plants, moss. And then as you research even more, you understand that there's maybe like 50,000 species of moss, all different from each other, and that actually they play a key role in the ecosystem. So understanding moss, looking at moss, uh, is really this way for me to, the beautiful metaphor of, of Kimmer in yeah, and slowing down, and what the garden means if you, if you, yeah, what the garden can mean uh, in that respect. Um, and I think moss in a garden is often something, at least here uh, in my surroundings, something that the people have always wanted to keep out. Like if the the tiles in the garden were covered in moss, it was considered a bad thing. And there's this change in in perception happening now in um, maybe uh, allowing for this moss to grow. There's one. Artwork, which is, is is referenced next to this this um, reference of Robin Wall Kimmerer, which is by Andrea Bütner, a German artist, and uh, this work was on on view in the exhibition uh, parallel. And what it contains is basically the artist giving the the museum staff the instruction of finding a big stone covered in moss and then bringing that stone into the museum. And during the time span of the museum um, opening hours and of the of the exhibition, to take care of this moss. And both this act of going out as a team to find the big rock with, with moss is already one aspect of slowing down and looking differently at your environment and understanding uh, your environment from uh, top uh, bottom down, you could say. You really have to suddenly figure out what's happening on the, on the, on the ground. And then this, this um, request to take care of it and to make sure it has enough lights, make sure that it is watered, doing this collectively as a team as well. There's so much... Uh, in this one simple instruction of finding a stone and taking care of it. I think that's a beautiful way of, of going against this um, image of the lawn. Yeah, lawns are are definitely my enemy because lawn, <laughs> lawns also bring the device that I hate the most, which is the leaf blower. I oh, hate yeah. that yeah. thing. There's there's nothing more shattering to your than your to your morning calm than a fucking leaf blower. And I'm not being facetious. I honestly think they should be outlawed. Like, I think they are one of the worst things ever. Yeah, yeah. But this, again, this, this idea of, of keeping the, the, your garden neat and tidy, which has nothing to do with creating a, a healthy ecosystem around you. Like, forgetting that these leaves are so important for, well, insects, um, for little, little animals to take shelter, protecting the ground uh, in, in times of frost and everything. Eh? Like we should not get rid of all the leaves also in public space. It's such a fascinating thing that leaves are considered a nuisance. Yeah, maybe it's our, our, our shitty shoes, right? Like, people are always like, you don't want to slip on the leaves. And I'm like, yeah, just walk more carefully, right? Like what are you, 
two, <laughs> right? Like you have an inability to walk on some wet leaves. Like, come on, give me a break. I, yeah, there it's, it's a, it's a horrible thing, but my leaf blower note aside, it's interesting. Your example talking about going out and looking for the rock that would be covered with moss, because I, I wanted to talk about the garden as a community, because we have seen so much of gardens as walled environments, right? To keep something or someone's out. But I think gardens have also have a special capacity to bring people and communities together, like a, a very popular, I'm sure it's in many cities, but I know here in New York, community gardens are like a big deal. And they are often pitted against developers, real estate developers who want to build some bullshit that even if it's not on the land that the community garden is using, what often happens here in New York, and I'm, I'm highlighting is that a New York thing because New York builds so up, is, is that a potential project might block the sunlight for the community garden. So the project going forward, it might not be on the land of the community garden, but it will destroy the community garden because there will no longer be sunlight. So I've, I've found growing up that even when, again, I had no interest really in gardens, that I saw community gardens as a way of fighting against these other interests, right? So I'm curious about your thoughts and what has surfaced about this notion of gardens as a community and by extension, a place to organize people. Yeah, that's beautiful the way you describe this. This really shows this political potential that the garden has in this kind of context, indeed, that it's also about, we've talked about like how the, the garden is a wall space uh, to claim, uh, claim land as well. But of course, that can also be used for the better in the way you're describing it now, that by gardening, you create revolts, huh? you, you create an anti-position. Uh, it reminds me a lot of, um, of some of the community gardens here in, uh, in speaking from, uh, from Amsterdam at this moment, but how this has happened here as well. And also how creating this community uh, around these, these allotment gardens, for example, that it's uh, both for the people who are doing the gardening or doing the work, but also how it radiates to the bigger community in this place of hope again, I think. This is really where, yeah, seeing something grow and blossom in a in a in a uh, urban environment is such a contradiction, like visually, aesthetically, almost. Huh? And then what I find beautiful about these things is also that this these these community gardens they uh, are not only about growing food and crops, but they're also about the beauty of nature. And with this beauty of nature, really claiming ground and making a stand because how can you destroy this beautiful garden uh, in the midst of the city? Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful way of sort of creating soft activism. And we, we need, we desperately need more of it. <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the things I often cite again here in New York, obviously we have many parks, not as many as we should, but for a large city, and I've lived in other large cities, New York is decently green, but like I said, it could be better. Like I would, I would prefer if every lot of land that became available, they either built a park or something that people could actually afford rather than these glass and, and, and steel towers of, um, of avarice and, and just gross capitalism. But nonetheless, I don't control any of that. Um, but, you know, do you think that that sort of 
of activism, soft or otherwise, can be a, a prevailing force against, again, that, that sort of capitalist urgency to just subsume <laughs> and, and extract at, at all costs. Because I, I feel there's a lot of potential in that. And I'm curious if, if someone like yourself, so well studied in this, feels that same potential. The exhibition that was parallel created next to the, the, the book was called The Botanical Revolution. And that was actually indeed this, this, this idea that you're uh, asking about now, that this, this revolution is not one of, of um, on the barricades and, and, and protesting very loudly, but it's a very quiet revolution. It's about slowing down and it's about, because of slowing down, experiencing a different rhythm of time. Uh, not experiencing the rhythm of time that is is imposed on us because of because of work and on uh, and because of constant uh, pressure to make ends meet, but uh, a rhythm, uh, yeah, basically slowing down and seeing life differently in the garden and seeing seeing how much of life there is more than just the brick walls around us, all these different species that we're living with together uh, and how we are. Yeah, making this world together with non-humans. Uh, I think this is really what uh, was key in thinking about the botanical revolution, and in my perception, would also be indeed our answer. Absolutely, I'm 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 signed up for the revolution. You know, I I, I wish I had more available ground to use <laughs> to, um, to to become a bigger part of it. I think it's it's so essential, and the book has the book and the collection because I think if I feel like when I call it a book I do it a disservice it, it is really a, a collection of amazing visuals and and literary and and philosophical ideas and and when I say philosophical I know a lot when people hear the word philosophical they think like oh it's just thinking and it doesn't matter but I think these are notions that are very highly applicable to the world not so much the world that we're living in today it is but the better world that we can live in, and, you know, tomorrow. I think yeah, it's exactly imagine a better world. Oh, absolutely, and it, and it involves these types of of revolutions. These um botanical revolutions are are critical to that. I, I want to jump to off the dome, which are just some rapid fire questions. Literally, the first thing that comes to mind, and I want to ask. I want to start with this one. I hope that you're a gardener because you're like I said, you're well schooled in this. So if I, I, I could be setting us up, but I would assume on some level you do garden. So what is the number one thing that everyone needs in order to garden? No matter the, the amount of space you have, what's the number one thing you think you need? Well, you need perception. You need to look at your <laughs> environment. <laughs> I think the main, main biggest mistake people make is that they go to a gardening center and they think, this is a beautiful plant. This would look beautiful in my garden, even if it's a, just a balcony. And then you come home and you realize like, oh, actually, uh, there's not so much sunlight. So maybe I should have gone for the shadow plant. So I think perception first, being open to where you are, what your place is, where you, where you intend to grow something. I think that's what you need first. <laughs> oh, you know what? That's, a, that's actually a really great answer because as someone who's, I've done that. Like I've walked into a store, for, oh, that plant looks amazing. And then it's like, that plant ain't going to make it, <laughs> right? Um, no, exactly. And it's not because you're a bad gardener. You can be a great gardener. You just need to find the right, um, the right plants to live with. Absolutely. My second question is, obviously, you're in the Netherlands. Tulips are big. Here in the United States, 
people are fascinated with roses, right? I, I'm sure that's a, around the world, but it's, I feel like that's a very particularly American thing. I could be wrong in that, but when people think about flowers, they think about roses, right? What is the unheralded plant or flower that you think people should be more aware of when they're thinking about gardening? I think I would go back to mosses. Like they are amazing, really. Like once you start seeing them and understanding them, it's such a fascinating, fascinating plant. I think they're like yeah, part of the very earliest developments of this earth. And they're still here, still playing a very important role in our ecosystem. So it's a very tiny little plant that asks us to be modest. And I think this is really a, a key in gardening. Yeah. I like that. A plant that asks us to be modest. And my final off the dome question is talking about so-called garden pest, right? The whatever insects or or other rodents or, or other animals um, that people feel are a detriment to their gardens, right? So we have to get rid of them. Take on pest. And again, I'm using the word that most commonly referred to. Love them, not love them. Like, how do we deal with those pesky rabbits who want to come into the garden and, and you know, chew up everything, yeah. but they're so cute. Yeah. Well, you're, 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 you're giving rabbits as an example. I, I have a very, very tiny little garden and I actually had rats. I'm living in the Nexoop Canal in Amsterdam. So this is the best that I've been trying to oh, understand. I'm in New York. I'm, I'm well versed on rats. Oh, yeah. And even though I'm yeah. in a very urban place, we have, it's surprising, Brooklyn. We have raccoons, we have possums, which I've had running around, squirrels, which we fed. Um, but yeah, we've had rats. And they're the worst. Yeah. So no, exactly. And they bring this whole theory of like making a garden together with the non-humans. They really like make it very difficult. <laughs> but so right now I kind of gave up because I just can't, I don't know what to do. I, I try to plant some plants that they maybe didn't like, but they kind of like everything that I plant. So I'm trying to live together with them in this little tiny yeah. patch. And, but that's part yeah. of how they survive, right? Because they like everything yeah. and they're the worst. Yeah, <laughs> they're, yeah I know. <laughs> and it's so difficult because you want to talk about, um, or at least like this whole research has really been about uh, taking care of nature in a different way, maintaining care. Yeah, and they completely turn this whole notion around and... Yeah, they, they can test your patience, yeah. you know, because we... We actually like started feeding our, you know, our squirrels, quote unquote, less because yeah. I don't want to leave the nuts out and then they, they come, right? Yeah. They're the worst. I, I hate them. I can honestly say that I, I could, I'm all for like living with the non-humans, but not the rats. <laughs> no, exactly. There's, there's this exception. <laughs> they are definitely the exception. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's the tail, it's the coat is the way they kind of scurry around, but don't like them. Yeah. <laughs> no. So I'm, I'm going to get to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is just a recommendation for our listeners. It could be anything at all. I'll go first. My drop is actually a show that has to do with gardening. And um, it's called Homegrown. And here in the United States, it's on HBO Max. Um you know, we have a million streaming channels, but it could maybe it exists on something else somewhere else. But it's um, a, a black woman in Atlanta, the Atlanta area, Atlanta, Georgia, who left her regular, her prior life to become like a urban farmer and gardener. And then she visits 
other people around Atlanta and teaches them how to garden and, and repurposes their spaces. And it's a very like calming show because everyone is like truly invested in this experience. Um, it's wonderful to watch. I, I do admit sometimes I watch it and I'm like, damn, these motherfuckers got money. Like, cause they, they have like a lot of land and they can, they can do the kind of garden shifting that I know requires money, but I still respect the show. So, um, so it's, it's nothing against them and what they're doing. They're doing it out of a heartfelt thing. But then there's a little part of me that's like, damn, I don't got, I don't got like a hundred grand to tear apart like acres of land to build this perfect garden. But I do love the show. So my, my drop is homegrown. <laughs> And that sounds fascinating. I'm very curious to start watching. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good watch. <laughs> yeah. No, as a drop, I have Emergence magazine. And um, it's a beautifully designed magazine. So that's one reason that's very attractive. But it's also an online magazine. So it's also free, um, freely available. And it's really about uh, stories and essays reflecting on ecology, culture, but also spirituality. And... Um, The recent issue is really also about how we need myth-making in times of uncertainty. And that if we, yeah, that we need to learn to, to, to deal with uncertainty in these, these days, um, these times that we are living in. And if we uh, eliminate uncertainty, then we are just living in an advertisement, you could say. And they make this beautiful um, collection of, of stories, essays, reflections. Uh, Robin Wall Kimmer often writes for them, actually. And I think there's a story by Susan uh, uh, Simmert, who wrote a lot about the Wood Wide Web. A lot of different angles on ecology and, and, and spirituality that I can really highly recommend. Yeah, Emergence is a, is a great magazine. I have a, a, quite a few copies of them. And I, and I ordered them so that I can, because I, I love, again, the, the hard copy of it. I agree. Get it, on, get it however you can. Check it out however you can. But there is something about the tactile nature of getting this nice fat, book that you can kind of go through and um yeah i 100 agree it's a beautiful beautiful publication great work on behalf of emergence um that's a great drop thank you Lori. this has been awesome thank you for starting my my monday morning when we're recording this with these notions of of beautiful gardening and and having this um, botanical revolution i i can't thank you enough for joining me on the deep dive thank you so much for this invitation thanks You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.